Revelation chapter 4, we turn to this morning. You'll probably notice some of the, the songs we sing and the scripture readings that tie into this great worship scene in heaven. Revelation chapter 4. And John says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of the trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one was sitting on the throne, and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night... They do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Let's pray. Father, we we see this glorious uh, worship scene in heaven, and we, we learn much about who you are and the praise that you so deserve. And Father, enable us by your grace this morning to, to fall, as it were, before you, acknowledging who you are, acknowledging our dependence upon you, and, and Father, giving you and your Son, Jesus, the praise that you so much deserve. So guide us, Father, into your truth. Your word is everlasting truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not sure how many times I have driven to the upper peninsula of Michigan. (laughs) I tried to estimate it, but I'm sure it's dozens and dozens of times. We moved from there in 1960, went to visit relatives, I don't know how many times a year. I've taken those roads so often I can just picture in my mind every little town along the way. It's a beautiful drive. That should be first on your bucket list. If you haven't taken a drive up to Houghton County, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, you ought to. 
It's a beautiful, beautiful drive. I hadn't seen the upper peninsula of Michigan from an airplane, however, until just a few months ago. And it's quite interesting. You know, when you're driving through an area, you've got this idea of what the land looks like. But when you get in an airplane and you get to see it from the sky, it really changes your perspective on things. And I'll have to say, being a youper, you know what that is? Born in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, we call them youpers. People that are born in the Lower Peninsula, we call them trolls because they're below the bridge, you know, the Mackinac Bridge. But it gave me even a much greater sense of pride to have been born in God's country of the, the UP. What a change in perspective. When you see things from an airplane compared to seeing things on the ground. That's kind of what I think of when we look at this chapter of Revelation. Chapters 2 and 3, we saw the seven churches, right? Things that were going on in, in the world and the lives of those congregations gathered throughout Asia Minor. Now, John is taken up into heaven. The door is open and the Lord says, I want to I show you some things. I want you to see things from a heavenly perspective. And when you see things from the vantage point of the throne, from a heavenly perspective, it really opens your eyes to things that are happening here on earth. It's a good thing that John has given this vision because God's people need to have a heavenly perspective. Would you agree? <laughs> It is so easy to get tied up in all the things of this world that we lose the big picture. God's vision, God's perspective from heaven. We know the book of Revelation was written to suffering Christians during the first century. And I would assume that many of them were thinking, does God know what we are facing? Is this world spinning out of control? Does the devil have free reign to do just whatever he wants to do? This chapter and the chapters that follow answer questions like that. And as we look at this chapter and the chapters that follow, the key to understanding this section is the what I would call the centrality of the throne. The throne is mentioned in this chapter at least ten times, if I counted right. And the throne then is the origin of all rule and power. And it illustrates to us that no matter what is going on in the world, God is still on his throne. You believe that? Yes, he is. He rules over all, and for this reason, He is to be praised. So, if you want the theme of this chapter, here it is. The one who rules over all is to be praised by all. That's the, that's the theme, the idea of this, this chapter. So, let's look at that. Number one, the one who sits on His throne rules over all. All. After listening to the challenge, repeated seven times in chapters 2 and 3, to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, 
We are now invited to see some things. Some things that John saw that he describes to us. Verse 1, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Now, there's a, there's a little significant word here that we don't want to miss. John isn't going to be shown what will take place, even though that is, that is, that is the case, as if, as if God only knows in advance what's going to happen, and he tells John what it will be. Notice what he says. John is told what must, what must take place. Now, that's a significant word, what must take place. In other words, God has a plan for the world, and there are certain things that must happen because He has determined them to happen. It's more than God's foreknowledge, just that God knows in advance what's going to happen. He has determined in advance what must happen. That ought to be an encouragement to us. As we see the things happening in the world, it's not just that God knows they'll happen, There are things that he has determined must happen. So the first thing John sees is a throne. And John lived in the Roman Empire, so he knew what a throne was, right? (laughs) A throne is where the emperor sat. A throne is where power and authority lies. And when the emperor spoke in Rome, things happened in the empire. Okay, That's, that's what rulers do, right? When they speak, executively on the throne, things happen. So here is what John is going to learn in this vision. And listen carefully. What happens on earth is determined in heaven. Things must take place as God has determined them to take place because of who He is. He is the one seated on the throne. He is the one who rules over all of creation. Go back to Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. Remember the things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, and here's what God says, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. That's the God who sits on the throne. The God who says, My purpose is going to be established. I'm going to accomplish all my good pleasure, and I'm going to tell you at the beginning what's going to happen at the end. Can you do that? I can't. But God can. Because these are the things that must take place. He has determined them to take place. Now, for first century believers who were facing hardships, that vision of God on the throne was good news. Although it might look that way, the world wasn't spinning out of control. Although it might appear to be the case, the devil didn't have freedom to do whatever he wanted. 
Although it might have seemed as if the evil Roman emperors were going to destroy the church that Jesus said he would build, the gates of hell would not prevail against it because God was ruling from his throne. Whatever happens on earth is determined in heaven. And these believers in that first century needed to know that. And we do too. Don't we? We need to know that. When you see what's going on in the world today, you might think that things are falling apart, but they are actually falling into place. Because God has a plan for this world. And when you begin to grasp this truth, it makes a difference how you read the book of Revelation. You see the hand of God in ways that maybe you haven't seen before. You see Him limiting evil men. You see Him protecting His people. You see Him judging sin. And it makes some of our fears go away. Because we know that these are the things that God has determined that must take place. And when you begin to grasp this truth, it also makes a difference in how we face the trials of life. You are not a victim of bad luck or fate. You know why? Because God rules on His throne. God is sovereign. God has a plan for your life and for my life. And therefore, we can take comfort in that truth that we are not just victims. We have a victim mentality in our culture today, don't we? It's always somebody else's fault, and I'm always the one being wronged, and, and all that. It's, what, a, what a depressing way to live. But when you know that God rules and reigns, that ought to make a difference in the way that you live. But He has a plan. He has a purpose for your life. Now, as John describes the throne in heaven, we get a picture of what God is going to do as He carries out His plan for the world. He is going to pour out His judgment upon sin. We get a picture of that in verse 5. It says, Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. Now, whenever you see flashes of lightning... And sounds of thunder, what do you think? Aha, there's a storm coming, right? And we better get ready because there is a storm coming. I think that's the lesson we learn here because whenever you see thunder and lightning in the book of Revelation, it is associated with the judgment of God. Let me give you some examples. Chapter 8, verse 5. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar, and he threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Chapter 11, verse 19. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of the covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning 
and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. So as John sees this vision, and here's this throne, and from this throne is coming these flashes of lightning and thunder and so forth, John is given a sign something is about to happen. And the source of all that is about to happen is the throne of God. From that throne is coming this lightning and thunder as if to say, God is going to do something. He's going to bring judgment upon this earth. And if you read along in the book of Revelation, those judgments are going to be severe. In fact, the judgments will be so severe that men will call upon the mountains to cover them. Men will want to die, but they will not be able to die, and they will not be able to claim that these are natural disasters, huh? Or a result of climate change or something silly like that. They will recognize that the day of God's wrath has come and no one will be able to stand. That's what they will say. So thunder and lightning are signs that from that throne God will issue forth His judgment. But notice, in the midst of all these judgments that come from the throne, there is... A rainbow around the throne. Verse 3. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. So on the one hand, you got the thunder and lightning coming from the throne. And on the other hand, you got a rainbow. It's just like, well, how does that fit? It fits. Do you know why it fits? It fits because in the midst of judgment, God offers His mercy. At least until the final day of judgment. We know what a rainbow symbolizes in Scripture. What do we think of when you see the rainbow? Think of the covenant that God made with Noah after the flood that He would never again bring judgment on the earth through a flood. So it reminds us of God's faithfulness, God's mercy. So a rainbow in the context of God's judgment suggests that God is merciful even when He judges. For example, chapter 7, you have these 144,000 uh, people mentioned from the tribes of, of Israel. And God protected them in the midst of all the judgment, holding back the four winds of the earth until these 144,000 had been sealed, protected by God. God is merciful to limit His judgment. If you read through all the judgments in Revelation, you'll see things like one-fourth of the, the trees or one-third of the ocean or one-third of the rivers. God is limiting His judgment rather than just unleashing it completely. And I think one of the reasons why is that these judgments are a wake-up call to people that it's time to get right with God. Time to repent. 
And yet you read through Revelation, what do you see? They, they refuse to repent. They curse the God of heaven. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so in the midst of these judgments that will come, God is offering His mercy. And that rainbow in the midst of the lightning and thunder would illustrate that purpose of God. So the one who sits on the throne is the one who rules over all. And these things that must take place have been determined by God. And we can rest in His plan for this world. The second thing that we notice, the one who sits on His throne is not the one who rules over all, but He is the one who is to be praised by all. Notice how this vision focuses on what is around the throne. We see the one on the throne, and then very often you see that word around the throne. Verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders clothed in white garments, golden crowns on their heads. And before the throne, verse 6, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, and in the center and around the throne, four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. Must have been mothers, right? Eyes in the back of their heads. So you've got the 24 elders. You've got the four living creatures. And they are gathered around the throne. And what we see then here is a worship scene. They praise the one who rules over all. And notice how the worship begins with a focus on the holiness of God. Verse 8, the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Now, this statement about the holiness of God would have been an encouragement to those who were suffering for their faith. Many of them may have doubted whether God was going to do something about all the evil in this world. And interestingly, even those who had died for their faith wondered about this. If you go to chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, you got this picture of these uh, martyrs, the souls of those who had been slain because of the Word of God, because of the testimony of Jesus. And they are crying out, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? What are they saying? God, you are a holy God. How long can you let this go on? How long before you bring judgment? How long before you avenge those who've shed our blood? What does God say? Verse 11, There was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer. Just a little while longer. Longer. So if you wonder when sin will finally be punished, you aren't the only one. <laughs> Even those who are already in heaven gathered, Lord, when, when are you going to avenge our blood? 
Seems like people get away with their sin for a long time. At least some people, isn't it? And you ask the question, when, when, when will judgment come? When will they get what they deserve? But one day, they will answer for their sin. Just a little while longer and our holy God will, will deal with the, the sin of this world. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And I find it interesting that there is repetition in the worship of heaven. Did you notice that? Day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. I find that interesting. I find that fascinating because there are many who complain about repetition in worship, right? We're going to do this Apostles' Creed again or we're going to do you know, this again. You know, it's like uh, just repeating the same words over and I understand that. And then on the other side, you know, we'll sing a praise song and say, oh man, how many times are we going to we're going to say this phrase, right? You hear what I'm saying? Maybe repetition isn't so bad. I don't picture anyone in heaven saying to the, the living, four living creatures, can't you, can't you come up with a new, a new verse? <laughs> Day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. So I hope you're not bothered by that in heaven. I don't think you will be. Because you'll be so in awe of the one who's seated on the throne... What else can you say? But, oh God, you are holy. You are almighty. <laughs> I worship. I bow at your feet. The holiness of God. Besides a focus on the holiness of God in worship, there's also a focus on the power of God. Did you notice that? The four living creatures keep saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. If you're wondering why they might describe God as the Almighty, look at verse 11. This is what the 24 elders say. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. They point to creation. The power of God in creation. And think of it. Think of the power of God in creation. You go back to Genesis 1 and what do you see? God said, let there be light. And what happened? There was light. God said, let this happen and that happen. And guess what? It happened. We think we're so smart today, you know, with our technology. We take things that have been already created and make things from what has been created. But we don't make anything new. We don't speak anything to existence, do we? So who do we think we are? God is the Almighty God who spoke things into existence. There's the Big Bang, right? God said it and bang, it happened, right? Just like that. And isn't it good for us to be reminded of God's power in our worship because we are Aren't we in daily need of the power of God? Is there a day goes by that you don't need the power of God? You can handle life on your own? I hope you don't think that. Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. 
Where does my help come from? Ask yourself that. Where does your help come from? I'll give you the answer because he goes on to say, My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So if your help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, is that enough power? I'd say so. And so we worship God for his power. Another thing to notice about worship in heaven is that it isn't a passive thing. Worship is actively ascribing worth to God. With our mouths, we do that, right? Look at verse 8. They ascribe worth to God and what they say about Him. They are saying in the hearing of those gathered around the throne that God is holy and almighty and eternal. Isaiah 6, one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. So there is a teaching aspect in worship in what we say about God. Many of our hymns are teaching hymns as they describe who this God is that we worship. And there's a biblical reason for doing that. Ephesians chapter 5, it says that we are speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So some of the songs we sing are songs about God. And we are teaching, we are proclaiming who God is. And then there's songs, not so much about Him, but songs to Him, right? And we see that here. Verse, the four living creatures, verse 9. John says that they give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne. So, as we come to worship, some of the songs we sing are about God. It is teaching to, speaking to one another. Showing us, reminding us of who He is, and then some are directly to Him. So there's a balance there. And I think we, we need both. I find it interesting also, when the four living creatures give their praise to God, the 24 elders join in. They respond to the holiness and power and glory of God in what they do. So there's what we say and then what we do. Look at verse 9. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever. And they will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Do you see why the key to understanding this chapter is the centrality of the throne? It's all about the one on the throne. <laughs> what is spoken is spoken about the one on the throne. What is done in this worship setting is done for the one on the throne. Even the crowns given. Why are they given? People will strut around in heaven and say, Look what I've done. Oh, no. They're cast before the throne. As if to say, it's all about you, God. It's not about me. 
casting their crowns as if to say, we aren't worthy of this. God, only you are worthy of this. Many years ago, a number of prominent literary men were assembled in a club room in London. And the conversation veered to a discussion of some of the illustrious figures of the past. And one of the men suddenly asked, gentlemen, what would we do if Milton were to enter this room? Oh, one said, we would give him such an ovation as might compensate for the tardy recognition accorded him by the men of his day. And if Shakespeare entered, well, we would arise and crown him master of song was the answer. And then one asked, and if Jesus were to enter? And there was a period of silence. And Charles Lamb said, we would all fall on our faces. And indeed, they would. Every knee will bow, right? Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. For some people, they will bow before Jesus as their judge. Because they spurned Him. They turned their back on Him. We have the privilege to bow before Him as our Savior. We don't have to wait till heaven. <laughs> we don't have to wait. Let's get used to worshiping Him now. So when we get to glory, it'll be just such, so natural. Because we love the One who gave His life for us. Let's pray. Lord, You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of all honor and glory. We bow at Your feet today. Like the living creatures, like the 24 elders, we say, You, O God, are worthy. Thank You for what You've done for us. Thank You for saving us, for giving Your life for us. O God, You are worthy of our praise. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.